Chapter Eight of the Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Latchkey by Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Eight: The Blue Diamond Ring. Annesley had not expected to sleep. There were a million things to think of, and it was one o'clock before she was ready to slip into bed in the green and white room with its bathroom annex. But the crowding experience of five hours had exhausted the girl. Sleep fell upon her as her head nestled into a downy pillow, and she lay motionless as a marble figure on a tomb until a sound of knocking forced itself into her dreams. She woke with a start. The curtains were drawn across the window, but she could see that it was daylight. A streak of sunshine thrust a golden wedge between the draperies, and seemed a good omen, for the sun had hidden from London through many wintry weeks. The knocking was real, not part of a dream. It was at her door, and jumping out of bed, she could hardly believe a clock on the mantelpiece which said half past ten. Who is it? she asked timidly, fearing that the Countess de Santiago's voice might answer. But a man replied. A note from a gentleman downstairs, please, and he's waiting an answer. Annesley opened the door crack and took in a letter. The new master of her destiny had written, "Hurrah, my darling! Our affairs march. I have been arranging about the license, etc., and I believe that you and I can join forces for the rest of our lives tomorrow. Blessed day! How soon can you come down and talk over plans? I've a hundred to propose. Will you breakfast with me, or have you finished?" Yours since last night till eternal night. N. S. The girl scribbled an answer, confessing that she had overslept, but promising to be down in half an hour for breakfast. She did not stop to think of anything but the need for a quick reply. Yet when the note was sent and she was doing her hair after a splash in the porcelain bath, what a luxury for the girl who had been practically a servant! She re-read her love letter spread on the dressing table. She liked her lover's handwriting. It seemed to express character, just such a character as she imagined her knights to be. There were dash and determination, and an originality which would never let itself be bound by convention. Perhaps, if she had been critical, if the handwriting had been that of a stranger, she might have thought it too bold. Long ago, when she was a very young girl, she had superficially studied the science of chirography from articles in a magazine, and had fancied herself a judge. She remembered disliking Mrs. Ellsworth's writing the first time she saw it, foreseeing the selfishness which afterward enslaved her. Since then, she had had little time to practice until the day when she heard from Mr. N. Smith after her answer to his advertisement in the Morning Post. One reason for feeling sure she could never care for the man was because his handwriting prejudiced her in advance. It was so stiff, so devoid of character. How different she reflected now from the writing of the man who had taken his place. She made such haste in dressing that her fingers seemed to be all thumbs, and when at length she was ready, she gazed gloomily into the mirror. Last night she had not been so bad in evening dress, but now in the cheap, ready-made brown velveteen coat and skirt and plain toque to match, which had been her best for two winters, she feared lest he should find her commonplace. The first thing I do when he's had time to look me over must be to tell him he's free if he wants his freedom," she decided, and she kept her word, 
when in the half-deserted foyer she had shaken hands with a young man who wore a white rose in his buttonhole. "'Please tell me frankly if you don't like me as well by daylight,' she gasped. "'I like you better,' he said. "'You're still my white rose. See, I've adopted it as your symbol. I shall never wear any other flower on my coat. This is yours. No, it's you, and I've kept the one I took last night. I mean to keep it always. No danger of my changing my mind. But you? I've lain awake worrying for fear you might. He held her hand, questioning her eyes with his. She shook her head, smiling. But he would not let the hand go. At that hour there was no one to stare. The Countess didn't warn you off me? Annesley opened her eyes. Of course not. Why, you told me you were old friends. So we are, as friends go in this world. Pals, anyhow. She's done me several good turns, and I've paid her. She'd always do what she could to help, for her own sake as well as mine. But her idea of a man may be different from yours. She wasn't with me long, explained Annesley. She said I needed sleep. After she'd looked at my room to see if it were comfortable, she bade me good night, and we haven't met this morning. The few remarks she did make about you were complimentary. What did she say? I'm curious. Well, if you must know, she said that you were a man few women could resist, and she didn't blame me. Hm! You called that complimentary? Let's suppose she meant it so. Now we'll have breakfast and forget her, unless you'd like her called to go with us on a shopping expedition I've set my heart on. What kind of a shopping expedition? Annesley wanted to know. To buy you all the pretty things you've ever wished for. The girl laughed. To do that would cost a fortune. Then we'll spend a fortune. Shall you and I do it ourselves, or would you like to have the Countess de Santiago's taste? Oh, let us go without her, Annesley exclaimed, unless you— Rather not. I want you to myself, you darling. We'll have a great day, spending that fortune. The next thing we do, it can wait till after we're married, is to look for a house in a good neighborhood, to rent furnished. But we'll get your swell cousins, Lord and Lady Annesley Seton, to help us choose. Perhaps there will be something near them. Why, they hardly know I exist. I doubt if Lady Annesley Seton does know, replied the girl. They'll do nothing to help us, I'm sure. Then don't be sure, because if you made a bet you'd lose. Take my word, they'll be pleased to remember a cousin who is marrying a millionaire. Good gracious, gasped Annesley. Are you a millionaire? Her lover laughed. Well, I don't want to boast to you, though I may to your cousins. But if I'm not one of your conventional stodgy millionaires, I have a sort of fortunatus purse which is never empty. I can always pull out whatever I want. We'll let your people understand without any bragging. I think Lady Annesley Seton, nie Miss Haverstall, whose father's purse is flattened out like a pancake, will jump for joy when she hears what you want her to do. But come along, let's have breakfast. Overwhelmed, Annesley walked beside him in silence to the almost deserted restaurant, where the latest breakfasters had finished, and the earliest lunchers had not begun. So the mysterious Mr. Smith was rich. The news frightened rather than pleased her. It seemed to throw a burden upon her shoulders, which she might not be able to carry with grace. The girl had little self-confidence, but the man appeared to be troubled with no doubts of her or of the future. Over their coffee and toast and hothouse fruit, he began to propose exciting plans, and had got as far as an automobile when the voice of the countess surprised them. She had come close to their table without being heard. "'Good morning,' she exclaimed. "'I was going out, but from far off I saw you two, 
with your profiles cut like silhouettes against all this glass and sunshine. I couldn't resist asking how Miss Grayle slept, and if there's anything I can do for her in the shops. As she spoke, her eyes dwelt on Annesley's plain toque and old-fashioned shabby coat, as if to emphasize the word shops. The girl flushed, and Smith frowned at the countess. "'No, thank you,' he replied for Annesley. "'There's nothing we need trouble you about till the wedding to-morrow afternoon. You can put on your gladdest rags then, and be one of our witnesses. I believe that's the legal term, isn't it?' "'I do not know,' said the countess, with a suppressed quiver in her voice, and a flash in the eyes fixed studiously on the river. "'I know nothing of marriages in England. Who will be your other witness, if it's not indiscreet to ask?' "'I haven't decided yet,' returned Smith, laconically." "'Ah, of course. You have plenty of friends to choose from. And so the wedding will be to-morrow?' "'Yes. One fixes up these things next to no time with a special license. Luckily, I am a British subject. I never thought much about it before, but it simplifies matters, and I have been living in this parish a fortnight to-morrow. That's providential, for it seems that legally it must be a fortnight. I've been up since it was light, learning the ropes and beginning to work them. Even the hour's fixed, two-thirty.' This was news for Annesley also, as there had been no time to begin talking over the hundred plans Smith had mentioned in his letter. "'You are prompt and business-like,' returned the Countess, and again the girl blushed. She did not like to think of her night of romance being business-like in his haste to make her his wife. But perhaps the Countess didn't mean to suggest anything uncomplimentary. "'At what shares will the ceremony take place, as the newspapers say?' she went on. "'It is to be a fashionable one?' "'No.' replied Smith, shortly. Weddings in fashionable churches are silly unless there's to be a crowd, and my wife and I are going to collect our circle after we're married. I'll let you know in time where we're going. As you'll be with the bride, you can't lose yourself on the way, so you needn't worry. I don't, laughed the Countess. I'm at your service, and I shall try to be worthy of the occasion. But now I shall take myself off, or your coffee will be cold." You have a busy day, and it's late, even later than our breakfasts on the Monarchic three weeks ago. Already it seems three months. Au revoir, Don. Au revoir, Miss Grail. She finished with a nod for Annesley and turned away. Smith let her go in silence, and the girl watched the tall figure, as perfect in shape and as perfectly dressed as a French model, walk out of the restaurant into the foyer. She seemed to have taken with her the golden glamour which had made up for lack of sunshine in the room before her arrival. Or if she had not taken it, at least it was dimmed. Annesley gazed after the figure until it disappeared, because she felt vaguely that it would be best not to look at her companion just then. She knew that he was angry, and that he wanted to compose himself. The Countess was as handsome by morning light, in her black velvet and chinchilla, as at night in flame color and gold. But the girl hoped she was not ill-natured. She looked meretricious. If she were made up, the process defied Annesley Grail's eyes. Yet surely never was skin so flawlessly white, and such golden-red hair with dark eyes and eyebrows must be unique. "'Great Scott! I thought she meant to spend the morning with us,' Smith broke out viciously. "'I realize, now I've seen you together, that she's not the ideal chaperone. But any port in a storm—' "'I thought you liked her,' Annesley said. "'So I do, within limits. At least I appreciate the qualities that she has. But there are times when a little of her goes a long way.' "'I'm afraid she realized that you weren't making her welcome,' Annesley smiled. "'You weren't very nice to her, were you?' "'I was as nice as she deserved,' the man excused himself. 
But she was good to me last night. She owes it to me to be good. It's a debt I expect her to pay, that's all, and I'm not sure she's paying it generously. You needn't be too grateful, dear. Perhaps, as she's known you some time, she feels you're sacrificing yourself, Annesley defended the Countess. I don't blame her. She's sharp enough to see that I'm in great luck, said Smith, but I suppose there's always a dash of the cat in a woman of her race. I hope there's no need to tell you that she has no right to be jealous. If she had, I wouldn't have put you within reach of her claws. There are assorted sizes and kinds of jealousy, though. Some women want all the limelight, and grudge sparing any for a younger and prettier girl. Annesley laughed. Prettier? Why, she's a beauty, and I— Wait till I introduce you to Mrs. Nelson Smith, who's going to be one of the best-dressed, best-looking young women in London, and you'll be sorry for the poor old countess, returned Smith warmly. You can afford, then, to heap coals of fire on her head, which can't make it redder than it is. Meanwhile, it occurs to me, from the way the wind blows, that you'd better go carefully with the lady. Don't let her pump you about yourself, or what happened at Mrs. Ellsworth's. It's not her business. Don't confide any more than you need, and if she pretends to confide in you, understand that it will be for a purpose. The Countess is no ingenue. But enough about her, he went on abruptly. She shan't spoil our first breakfast together, even by reminding me of gloomy meals I used sometimes to eat with her when we happened to find ourselves in each other's society on board the Monarchic. I was feeling down on my luck then, and she wasn't the one to cheer me up. But things are different now. Have you noticed, by the way, that she has a nickname for me? Yes, Annesley admitted. She calls you Dawn. It's a name she made up because she used to say, when we first met, I was like a Spaniard, and I can jabber Spanish among other lingos. It's more her native tongue, you know, than English. I only refer to it because I want you to have a special name of your own for me, and I don't want it to be that one. It can't be Nelson, because— well, I can never be at home as Nelson with the girl I love best, the one who knows how I came to call myself that. Will you make up a name for me and begin to get used to it today? I'd like it if you could. May I call you Knight? Annesley asked shyly. I've named you my Knight already in my mind and heart. He looked at her with rather a beautiful look, clear and wistful, even remorseful. It's too noble a name, he said. Still, if you like it, I shall. Maybe it will make me good. Jove, it would take something strong to do that. But who knows? From now on I'm your knight. You needn't wrestle with Nelson except when we're with strangers. And look here, he broke off. I've another favor to ask. Better get them all over at once. The big ones are hard to grant. You reminded me last night that we wouldn't be legally married if I didn't use my own name. That may be true. I can't very well make inquiries but just in case, I'm giving my real name and shall sign it in a register. That's why our marriage must be quietly performed in a quiet place. It shall be in a church, because I know you wouldn't feel married if it wasn't, but it must be in a church where nobody we're likely to meet ever goes, and the parson must be one we won't stand a chance of knocking up against later. Managed the way I shall manage it, there'll be no difficulty. Mr. and Mrs. Blank will walk out of the vestry after they're signed their names, and lose themselves. No reason why they should ever be associated with Mr. and Mrs. Nelson Smith. Do you mind all these complications? Not if they're necessary to save you from danger, the girl answered. By Jove, you're a trump. But I haven't come to the big favor yet. Now for it. When I write my real name in the register, I don't want you to look. Is that the one thing too much? 
Annesley tried not to flinch under his eyes. Yet he had put her to a severe test. Last night, when he said that it would be better for her not to know his name, she had quietly agreed. But there was the widest difference between then and now. At that time they had been strangers flung together by a wave of fate which, it seemed, might tear them apart at any instant. In a few hours all was changed. They belonged to each other. This man's name would be her own, yet he wished her to be ignorant of it. If the girl had not thought of him truly as her knight, if she had not been determined to trust him, the big favor would indeed have been too big. Despite her trust and the romantic new-born love in her heart, she was unable to answer for a moment. Her breath was snatched away, but as she struggled to regain it and speak, a bleak picture of the future without him rose before her eyes. She couldn't give him up and go on living, after the glimpse he had shown her of what life might be. "'No, it's not too much,' she said, slowly. "'It's only part of the trust I've promised to—my knight.' He gave a sigh of relief. "'Thank you, and my lucky star for the prize you are,' he exclaimed. "'Some men would have offered their thanks to God or to heaven.' Annesley noticed that he praised his star. This was one of many disquieting things, large and small, for she had been brought up to be a religious girl, and was mentally on her knees before God in gratitude for the happiness which illuminated her gray life. She could not bear to think that God was nothing to the man who had become everything to her. She wanted to shut her eyes to all that was strange in him, but it was as difficult for Psyche to resist lighting the lantern for a peep at her mysterious husband in his sleep. For instance, there was the Countess de Santiago's reference to their association on board the Monarchic, which Knight had refrained from mentioning. He had spoken of it after the Countess had gone, to be sure, but briefly, and because it would have seemed odd if he had not done so. It had struck Annesley that his annoyance with the lady was connected with that sharp little dig of hers, and she could not sweep her mind of curiosity. The moment the monarchic's name was brought up, she remembered reading a newspaper paragraph about the last voyage of that great ship from New York to Liverpool. Fortunately, or unfortunately, her recollection of the paragraph was nebulous, for when she read news aloud to her mistress she permitted her mind to wander, unless the subject happened to be interesting. She tried to keep up a vaguely intelligent knowledge of world politics, but small events and blatant sensations, such as murders, burglaries, and society divorces she quickly erased from her brain. Something dramatic had occurred on the monarchic. Her subconscious self recalled that, but it was less than a month ago that she had read the paragraph, therefore the sensation, whatever it was, must have happened when Knight and the Countess de Santiago were on board, coming to England, and she could easily learn what it was by inquiring. Not for the world, however, would she question her lover, to whom the subject of the trip was evidently distasteful. Still less would she ask the countess behind his back. There was another way in which she could find out a sly voice seemed to whisper in Annesley's ear. She could get old numbers of the Morning Post, the only newspaper that entered Mrs. Ellsworth's house, and search for the paragraph. But she was ashamed of herself for letting such a thought enter her head. Of course she would not be guilty of a trick so mean. She would not try to unearth one fact concerning her knight, his name, his past, or any circumstances surrounding him, even though by stretching out her hand she could reach the key to his secret. He talked of things which at another time would have palpitated with interest, their wedding, their honeymoon, their homecoming, and Annesley responded without betraying absent-mindedness. 
It was the best she could do, until the effect of the biggest favor and the doubts it raised were blurred by new sensations. She would not have been a normal woman if the shopping excursion planned by night had not swept her off her feet. The man with Fortunatus's purse seemed bent on trying to empty it, temporarily, for her benefit. If she had been sent out alone to buy everything she had ever wanted, with no regard to expense, Annesley Grail would not have spent a fifth of the sum he flung away on evening gowns, street gowns, boudoir gowns, hats, high-heeled, paste-buckled slippers, a gold-fitted dressing-bag, an ermine wrap, a fur-lined motor-coat, and more suede gloves and silk stockings than can be used, it seemed to the girl, in the next ten years. He begged for the privilege of helping choose, not because he didn't trust her taste, but because he feared she might be economical and during the whole day in Bond Street, Regent Street, Oxford Street, and Knightsbridge, she was given only an hour to herself. That hour she was expected to pass, and did pass, in providing herself with all sorts of intimate daintiness of nainsook, lace, and ribbon, too sacred even for a lover's eyes. And Knight spent the time of his absence from her upon an errand which he did not explain. "'I'll tell you what I did, and show you, to-morrow when I come to wish you good morning,' he said, unless you're going to be conventional and refuse to see me till we meet at the altar, as the sentimental writers say. I think I've heard that's the smart thing. But I hope it won't be your way. If I didn't see you from now till tomorrow afternoon, I should be afraid I'd lost you forever. Annesley felt the same about him, and told him so. They dined together, but not at the Savoy. The Countess's name was not mentioned, yet Annesley guessed it was because of her that Knight proposed an Italian restaurant. When he left her at last at the door of her own hotel, everything was settled for the wedding day and after. Knight was to produce two friends, both men, to one of whom must fall the fatherly duty of giving the bride away. He suggested their calling upon her in the morning, while he was with her at the Savoy, in order that they might not meet as strangers at the church, and the girl thought this a wise idea. As for the honeymoon, Knight confessed to knowing little of England outside London, and asked Annesley if she had a choice. Would she like to have a week or so in some warm county like Devonshire or Cornwall, or would she enjoy a trip to Paris or the Riviera? It was all one to him, he assured her, only he had set his heart on getting back to London soon, finding a house, and beginning life as they meant to live it. Annesley chose Devonshire. She said she would like to show it to-night. I think you'll love it, she told him. We might stay at several places I used to adore when I was a child. And if we get to Sidmouth, maybe you'll have a glimpse of those cousins you were talking about, the Annesley Setons. I believe they have a place nearby called Valley House, but I don't know whether they live there or let it. We'll go to Sidmouth, he said. The girl smiled. His desire that she should scrape acquaintance with Lord and Lady Annesley Seton seemed boyish and amusing to her but she did not know how it could be brought about. Next morning at eleven o'clock, when Annesley had been up for two hours, packing her new things in her new trunks, and the gorgeous new dressing-bag, she was informed that Mr. Nelson Smith had arrived. The girl had forgotten that Knight had hinted at something to tell her, and something to show her on the morning of their marriage day, and expected to find his two friends with him, but he had come alone. "'We've got a half-hour together,' he said, then Dr. Torrance and the Marchese de Morello may turn up at any minute. Torrance is an elderly man, a decent sort of chap, and deadly respectable. He'll do the heavy father well enough. Paolo di Morello is an Italian. 
I don't care for him, but the troublesome business about my name is a handicap. I can trust these men, and at least they won't put you to shame. You can judge them when they come, so enough talk about them for the present. This is my excuse for being here. And he put into Annesley's hand a flat, oval-shaped parcel. My wedding gift to my bride, he added, in a softer tone. Open it, sweet. The white paper wrapping was fastened with small red seals. If the girl had had knowledge of such things, she would have known that it was a jeweler's parcel. But the white, gold-stamped silk case within surprised her. She pressed a tiny knob, and the cover flew up to show a string of pearls which made her gasp. "'For the princess from her knight,' he said. And here, he took from the inner pocket of his coat a band of gold set with a big white diamond, is your engagement ring. Every girl must have one, you know, even if her engagement is the shortest on record. I've the wedding ring, too, but it isn't the time for that. A good-sized diamond's the obvious sort of thing, advertises itself for what it is, and that's what we want.' You'll wear it as much to say, I was engaged like everybody else. But if there wasn't a reason against it, this is what I should like to put on your finger. As he spoke, he hid the spark of light in his other hand, and from the pocket whence it had come produced another ring. If she had not seen this, Annesley would have exclaimed against the word obvious for the splendid brilliant as big as a small pea, which Knight put aside so carelessly. But the contrast between the modern ring with its solitaire diamond and the wonderful rival he gave it silenced her. She was no judge of jewelry, and had never possessed any worth having, but she knew that this second ring was a rare as well as a beautiful antique. It looked worthy, she thought, of a real princess. Even the gold was different from other gold, the little that was visible, for the square-cut stone of pale, scintillating blue was surrounded by a frame of tiny brilliance encrusting the rim as far as could be seen on the back of the hand, when the ring was worn. "'A sapphire!' Annesley exclaimed. "'My favorite stone! Yet I never saw a sapphire like it before. It's wonderful! Brighter than a diamond!' "'It is a diamond,' said Knight. "'A blue diamond, and considered remarkable. It's what your friend Ruth Venn Smith would call a museum piece, if you showed it to him. But you mustn't. He'd move heaven and earth to get it. Nobody must see it but you and me. It wouldn't be safe. It's too valuable.' and if you were known to have it, you'd be in danger from all the jewel thieves in Europe and America. You wouldn't like that. No, it would be horrible, Annesley shuddered. But what a pity it must be hidden. Is it yours? It's yours at present, said Knight, if you'll keep it to yourself, and look at it only when you and I are alone together. I can't give it to you precisely to have and hold, as I shall give you myself in a few hours, because this ring is more a trust than a possession." Something may happen which will force me to ask you for it. But again it may not. And anyhow, I want you to have the ring until that time comes. I've bought a thin gold chain, and you can hang it round your neck unless—I almost think you're inclined to refuse? Another mystery. But the blue diamond in its scintillating frame was so alluring that Annesley could not refuse. She knew that she would have more pleasure in peeping surreptitiously at the secret blue diamond— then in seeing the obvious white one on her finger. "'I can't give it up,' she said, laughing. "'But I hope it isn't one of those dreadful historic stones which have had murders committed for it, like the famous jewels one reads of. I should hate anything that came from you to bring bad luck.' "'So should I hate it. If there's any bad luck coming, I want it myself,' Knight said gravely. "'I wish I hadn't spoken of bad luck to-day,' the girl remorsefully exclaimed. 
But I am not afraid. Give me the ring. He gave it, and pulled from his pocket the slight gold chain on which he meant it to hang. He was leisurely threading the ring upon this, when two men looked in at the door of the reading-room. One of the pair was of more than middle age. He was tall, thin, and slightly stooping. His respectable clothes seemed too loose for him. His hair and straggling beard were gray, contrasting with the sallow darkness of his skin. He wore gold-rimmed spectacles, and peered through them as if they were not strong enough for his failing sight. The other man was younger. He, too, was dark and sallow, but his close-cut hair was black. He was clean-shaven and well-dressed. He wore a high, almost painfully high collar, which caused him to keep his chin in the air. He might be a Spaniard or an Italian. Annesley had certainly not seen him before. She told herself this twice over. Yet she was frightened. There was something familiar about him. It must be her foolish imagination which took alarm at everything. But, with fingers grown cold, she covered up the blue diamond. End of chapter 8